forgot to do this at the 8.30 service. Let's pray. God, speak to our hearts. Um, Convict us if we need convicting. Encourage us if we need encouraging. And let us go out of here sharper, stronger, and more faithful than when we came in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want you to do something for me. I'm going to say a word. I want you to repeat it after me as loud as you can, all right? This or this? Come on. Are you with me? Okay. All right. Ready? Ready? Sex. Sex. How many of you blushed? Look around if your neighbor's cheeks are red. How many of you got embarrassed? I see some squirming. I see some, oh, it's church. We can't talk about sex. Yeah, we're talking about sex in church. Um, And I don't need to state the obvious, but our culture is sexually saturated at every level. Average person gets bombarded with 50,000 visual images per week. And so in 30 minutes on a Sunday, I'm supposed to counter 50,000 visual images? No, but hopefully God can start here. Most of those images, many of them are sexual in nature because sex is everywhere in our culture. I did an incredibly detailed scientific study by going to the drugstore and looking at the magazine. (laughs) And I I actually, there was a congregation member who saw me looking at magazines. I was like, I'm looking for magazines with sex on the cover. (laughs) She's like, oh, really? (laughs) It was fun. Um, 60 sex skills. Guys reveal the most mind-blowing bedroom moves women have ever tried. Cosmopolitan. Are you normal about sex? Intimate details on what everyone's doing. Glamour. Why? Uh, yeah, sex and men special. Pro tips you deserve to know and other hot tricks. Oh, and this one also in big print, 1,121 sexy ideas. Marie Claire. You notice these are all women's magazines? I haven't even gotten to the men. How to make sex more meaningful. Self. 30 red hot sex secrets. Men's health. GQ. World's sexiest supermodel. Bears all. And I thought I'd be safe with this one. And it came in the mail and it was hilarious. I had to pull it out. National Geographic this month. (laughs) Love the chemical reaction. (laughs) Sex is everywhere. You know, and just informally, when I was looking, I noticed that on the women's magazines, not only were there pictures of women on the women's magazines and on the men's, but uh, the word sex appeared probably two or three times more on the women's magazines than the men's. So the myth that men think about sex and women don't, whatever. (laughs) Television. Past 20 years, the most popular sitcoms have all been about singles in big cities having lots of sex and zero consequences. You recognize these guys? How many Seinfeld fans? Mm-hmm. What about Friends? I know y'all watch Friends. I watch Friends. What, uh, and the new one, the newest craze is, uh, or newer, Sex in the City. They've just put that on basic cable now. A little edited version, but not much. It, filled with sex. In fact, the idea is that it is normal. If you are single, you are having sex. And if you're not, you're crazy. Movies. Um, I didn't mention this one earlier, but the the movie just came out recently, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, all about how 
unbelievably ridiculous it is for somebody to be 40 years old and never had sex. Um, right, the American Pie films that your kids have probably seen, much to your chagrin, they're all about teenagers and college students trying to have sex. The most critically acclaimed movie right now that's probably going to win a lot of awards at the Oscars this year is Brokeback Mountain. That's about two cowboys that have wives and kids and families, and then they uh, fall in love with each other. Sex is everywhere, and our society basically sends the message, when it comes to sex, make your own rules. It's a free-for-all. How do we live? How do we as Christians live in this culture? Do we shut ourselves off? Do we cocoon ourselves? Do we become part of the culture? How do we live? Well, before we talk about that, answer the obvious question, why am I talking? Why am I giving this talk? I don't have a ring on this finger, which means I'm not having sex. Um, I'm 27. I'm single. I've never been married. I've never had sex. I am a virgin. <laughs> and that's... It, it's easy when you're a pale redhead kid. The temptation's not <laughs> running, so. it's Really, the applause isn't necessary. Um, but, you know, why, why isn't Talbot giving this message? Obviously, it's because he's scared to. And, um, <laughs> you know, he's, he's so timid and uh, afraid to touch controversy. No, it's not actually... It, it was very intentional why uh, we felt that I should give this message, or at least one of them, and that is because, how many people in here are saying, raise your hand if you're not married. Wow. That's a lot. That's a sizable amount of the congregation. A number of people, such as myself, who aren't married, have struggled with this series, because the series has been about relationships and marriage, and the idea, not intentional, but it comes across to single people sometimes is that we don't really matter or we're not really normal or it's always the adage, well, if you're single, this also applies. Well, today is our sermon, singles, and I'll be speaking to you. Now, if you're married, this also may apply to you somehow, but this is a sermon basically aimed toward people that are single and battling in this culture that we live in. So back to sex, uh, while you're really here. Does the Bible even talk about sex? And if so, does it have anything relevant to say about it? A lot of people have the idea that, you know, the Bible only talks about sex in biblical times. Things are different today. Everybody was married when they were 14 back then, or, you know, they didn't really know the things we know about sex. And what. It's garbage. I mean, really. Have they, is it really that different? Um, there's a city in the ancient world called Corinth. And Corinth was in the Roman Empire... There's a picture of it. Very, very prosperous city. It sat on a land bridge, and it had two seaports, and it basically controlled all the trade between the East and the West and the Roman Empire. So as a result, Corinth was um, a commercial center. Huge city. And like all commercial centers in huge cities, Corinth was very cosmopolitan. It was very affluent. Corinth was known for being a place you could come and you could do as you please. A lot of different cultures, a lot of different people coming. Some people came and they worshiped this God. Some people came and they worshiped that God. And so Corinth, you could, you know, it was, it was pretty culturally, hey, do what you want. Um, it was very prosperous, very individualistic. In Corinth, it was my rights. I am important because I've done such and such. Excavations have found monuments that people built dedicated to themselves to show how important they were. 
Corinth was basically, it was, it was the most depraved city in the Roman Empire for a period. And on top of, if you look at the screen, overlooking the city of Corinth was this big mountain, and it was called the Acrocorinth. And on top of that mountain at one time was the temple to the city's patron god, Aphrodite. And Aphrodite is the goddess of love, also known as Venus to the Romans. And at the temple of Aphrodite, a historian named Strabo tells us that at one point in Corinth's history, the temple employed a thousand temple prostitutes that worked in the temple, and their job was to help people worship Aphrodite by having sex with them. Church attendance, very high in the city of Corinth. <laughs> very religious city. Yeah, that's how you'd worship Aphrodite, is, is you would present an offering, and then you'd offer yourself. And at one point, even the, the temple prostitutes would, on, on certain nights, would leave the temple and go down throughout the city and evangelize. <laughs> Door-to-door evangelism, very different back then. Oh, uh, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Corinth was so depraved that uh, Aristophanes, an ancient writer, coined this term Corinthiazo, and that's a verb, and it meant to be morally decadent or to be the bottom of the barrel uh, sexually and, and morally, and just, you didn't want to be a Corinthian. Corinth was basically New York, L.A., Las Vegas, Amsterdam, and Bangkok all rolled into one as far as culture goes. Anything goes in Corinth. Does that sound familiar? Anybody relate to that? Uh, Corinth is almost, it was before postmodernism was a thing, Corinth was postmodern because it was just no truth, do what you want, hey, everybody's good, you leave them alone, you leave them alone, and we'll do our thing. Well, Paul planted a church in Corinth because he knew it was a strategic city, but imagine this, Paul planted a church in Corinth, and the Christians there were adrift in a sea of sexuality every day. And, and as is imaginable, a lot of them couldn't stay in the boat. The Corinthian Christians were immersed in a society where um, you, they had slogans and, and attitudes and ways to rationalize their behavior. And so Paul, when he writes to them, he actually uses some of those slogans and attitudes, and he kind of shows the lie behind them. And so I want to read Paul's words. It's in 1 Corinthians. This was a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and it begins in chapter 6. The Bible under your seat is page 851. Chapter 6, verse 12. Paul's going to engage some of their quotes and their slogans and things like that. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in the spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. For all sins people commit are outside their bodies. 
But those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Did you see the cultural myths in there? The, the rationalizations that the Corinthian Christians, and I believe our society today does the exact same thing. I think they're this, nothing's really changed except the technology. They had temple prostitutes. We have the internet. They had pagan sex rituals. We have adult bookstores. They have, it's the same. It, nothing's really changed except our ability to sin has increased. What Paul does is he picks out the slogans and the myths that the Corinthian culture tells. The first myth is basically, I'll do what I want. It's my right. You know, I have the right to do anything. And where they picked that up was, was from the notion of being free in Christ. Paul had started this church, and Paul, as you know, he talked a lot about the freedom from the law. Well, he was talking about the Jewish law, the Torah, and how Christ being the fulfillment of that brought freedom from the law. Well, Corinthian Christians took that as freedom from all laws. And so I, as a Christian, can do whatever I want, and, you know, I'm free from the law. It's all good. Grace covers everything. I'll just repent later. And just all of these rationalizations. The second cultural myth was more interesting. They used this phrase. It was um, food for the body and the body for food, but God will destroy them both. And so the second myth was sex is natural. It's no big deal. It's just like eating. You know, your food's for body, your body's for food, and it's going to be destroyed anyway. We're going to die, and this shell's going to rot. It doesn't. It, it's, it's natural, Paul. Calm down. It's like going to the bathroom or blowing your nose and having sex. It's all the same thing. I hear that one a lot, uh, even in today's culture. The third myth that Paul engages is the most, I guess, sophisticated intellectually. Talbot's preached before about the Gnostics, Gnosticism, this belief that arose later after the time of the Bible but had its beginnings in the time of Paul. And, and these Gnostic tendencies were basically our bodies are just shells, and so they don't really matter because sin that we do just affects stuff out here. But in here, we're clean and pure, and that's because that's where our spirituality truly is. So you can go and you can do whatever you want with your body. Yeah, I can go to the temple of Aphrodite and worship for however long I want, but inwardly I'm loving the Lord. And so that was, that was the mindset that Corinthian Christians were, were spouting out. There's a, a, I need to make a note about this last one. The NIV, if you were following along, if you have an NIV, if you have another one, it may be different. Verse 18, there, there's a word that says, all other sins a man commits are outside his body. The word other isn't in the original Greek text. That's an, an interpretation that the NIV translators went with. But really, it's, it's, not a, it's not Paul saying that all other sins are different than sexual sin and worse, or sexual sin is worse. It, it's a slogan that the Corinthian church were using. They're basically saying all sins are done outside the body. So just in case you read that and you thought I skipped a word or something, that's, um, it just feeds into this mindset that sin's outside. Well, Paul gives a biblical reality. And so I wanted us to look at the biblical reality. What's God's plan for sexual intimacy? He goes through and he kind of systematically refutes each of these myths with a biblical truth. Biblical truth number one, it's not about our rights. It's about what's right. The Corinthian culture, just like ours, was all about rights. I can do what I want. What goes on in my bedroom is between me and whoever I'm with. You have no business telling, you mind your, you hear it every day. It's the same attitude that we have. And what Paul's saying is, 
he's interesting. He, he says it twice. He recounts their phrase twice, and he says, you know, you can, you can do all things, but are all things beneficial? You know, some things that you think you have the right to do, are they really right? Are they really helping you? And then he uses a word play. He says, I am able to do all things, but I will not be mastered by anything. And in Greek, the fra- it uses the same play on word. And a, an English way to bring that word play out is, is Paul basically saying, I have power to do anything, you say, but I'll not be overpowered by anything. And what he's saying is that what, what these Corinthian Christians and what we think is right, and it's our right to do, and it's fine, he's saying, it, that's a, you're under somebody's power. Um, when you're engaged in sin, specifically sexual sin, is overpowering. It's addictive. Ask anybody in here who's ever struggled in any area of sexual sin, or a couple in here who may at one point have been sexually active but then decided to stop until marriage, ask them how easy it was. It's overpowering because we're designed, we have a sex drive. It's natural. And God says, yes, but only within certain parameters. And so Paul, the, the first thing he says, it's not about your rights. Oh, I can do anything I want. Yeah, but will you do what God wants? Well, then the second, he engages their second myth. And the second one, oh, Paul, calm down. Sex is natural. It's just like eating and, and it's physical. And Paul says, yeah, sex is not just a physical act. It is physical. It's very physical. <laughs> but it's not just physical. It's, it's a spiritual bonding. Sex, like is di- sex is different from any other acts in that if you eat or if you drink or if you that just affects you and your body but but sex involves two people and their bodies and their innermost there's nothing more intimate you can give another human being than yourself sexually i mean that's it you, there's nothing else that's at the top of the intimacy scale and so paul's saying you don't understand it's not just eating every time you have sex you unite yourself with someone And then he goes on to use the example in their day of prostitution, but in our day it would apply to any sexual sin. He says, don't you know if you unite yourself with someone that you are one flesh? He quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, the two will become one flesh. And the word for uniting um, or joining, depending on your translation, it's a Greek word, it's kolomenos. And kolomenos is the word that in secular Greek would be used to describe if a piece of pottery broke and you glued the handle back on, or if a statue, uh, a part chipped off, you'd weld it back on if it was metal, then it would be in a state of kolomenos. It would be joined, it would be glued, it would be welded, it would be permanent. And that's what scripture describes the sex act as, a permanent bonding between two people, glued, welded, kolomenos. And so Paul's saying, it's not just physical. It's not just, it, there are spiritual realities and spiritual consequences behind what you're doing. And you may not see them, but God does because he designed it for a purpose. And a lot goes on than just the, more than just the physical. And the third myth that Paul debunks, the cultural lie, is that bodies don't matter. And this one, I think, Christians have carried on for a long time, unfortunately. Um, Somewhere in church history, it became just accepted that sex was somehow bad. St. Augustine called it a tolerated evil. And that is so far from the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, you can't even get past Genesis 1 before God. The first command God gave to people was what? Be fruitful and multiply. I.e., have a lot of sex and have a lot of kids and fill this world that I created for you. It's natural. That's the per- it's, bodies matter. 
God created our bodies. We're going to get our bodies back. Did you know that? Paul says that. He says the, the Lord that raised uh, Jesus from the dead is going to raise us also. Now, hopefully we'll get bodies that are a little bit better than what we're here with on earth that don't decay, that don't break down, that sickness, whatever. We don't know exactly what that's like, but we know that when Jesus came back, he had a body, and his body was recognizable, even down to the scars in his wrists. And so our bodies matter, but more than just because we'll get them back, more than just because they're, uh, in theory they matter, they matter because what Paul says is your bodies are members of Christ's body. And he uses the word members, which is kind of seems weird in our, you know, we think of member of a club or something. But the word is like limbs and organs, body parts. We are the body parts of Jesus. We are, I mean, we say it so cliche all the time. Well, I want to be the hands of Jesus to the world. Well, you are. And you're the feet, and you're the mouth, and the nose, and the eyes, and the ears, and the spleen, and everything else. You're, we are Jesus' body. And so what Paul says is, would you, when you unite yourself sexually in sin, you are taking Jesus' body and you are bringing him and uniting him with a prostitute. Would you do that? Never, is Paul's response. Our bodies are parts of Jesus. What do you take Jesus' eyes to go see? What do you touch with Jesus' hands? What do you do with Jesus' body? Well, you make that choice every day because you are. Another reason why the body is so important is because the body, it's God's temple. And I, I pause because if you understand, those of you who have taken and studied Old Testament with me, the temple was so holy and so unapproachable. And yet God chose to dwell in us after the death and resurrection of Jesus as his temple. Now, this verse, your body is a temple, is quoted all the time in the light of you got to take care of what you eat and don't smoke and don't eat too much sugar. And It doesn't have anything to do with healthiness. This has to do with holiness. Now, you can argue about taking care of your body from other passages in Scripture, but that's not what this is about. When Scripture says your body is a temple, it's meaning in the context of your body is where God dwells. Keep it pure sexually. That's what Paul is writing about in this passage. It's not about healthiness, it's about holiness. And the third reason why your body matters is because it's been bought for freedom. He uses the phrase, he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And that terminology is the term that everybody in Corinth would have been familiar with because Corinth was part of the Roman Empire. And at times in the Roman Empire, at least one-third of all citizens either come from a family or had been themselves slaves. And the way you got out of slavery in the Roman Empire was you were redeemed. You were bought either by another master or you could buy your own freedom if you had the money. And so what Paul's saying, using the language that they speak, is he's saying, You've been bought by a new master. And your new master, unlike your old master, sin, who was a harsh and an overpowering and a domineering master, your new master is all about freedom and all about peace and wholeness and all about you and your body and keeping it as fit as can be spiritually. We've been bought. And the price that was paid was pretty high. 
See, the price that was paid was Jesus' blood when he hung on the cross, humiliated and shameful and in pain. But he paid that price so that we don't ever have to go around humiliated and shameful and in pain. It was a high price. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Paul says, honor God with your bodies. It doesn't matter what you say in your mind or say with your mouth. If you are not honoring God with your body, you're not honoring God. And so Paul's bringing it. I mean, he is, oh, the Corinthians are just like, whoa, okay. And so for the ones, the Corinthian Christians that may have heard this and may have been convicted, maybe the Holy Spirit's stirring and their heart's beating a little faster, and they're like, oh, Paul, you've just, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out of sorts. The question then becomes, and that may be the case of somebody in here. Somebody in here may be feeling the, you know, the heartbeat of, uh-oh, I need to slip out the back because this is affecting me. Well, what do we do? How do we live? What's the, I mean, how do we live, honestly? As singles who aren't married and sex isn't an option for us, how do we live? As married people where sex is only between you and your spouse, yet temptation is everywhere, how do you live? There's a couple of things that Paul hints at in the letter, and I, I think they're really valuable. And it begins with knowing. We have to know. You notice how many times Paul said, do you not know? We have to know biblical truth and culture's lies, God's plan and the lies that we're fed every day. Every day. And I, I was thinking of how to, to illustrate this. And Anybody watch The Real World? Anybody? Yeah? The rest of you just don't admit it. Uh, no, the real world is it was one of the first reality TV shows, and MTV uh, takes a bunch of people that don't know each other, and they're very controversial and fiery and, and interesting sometimes, and they put them into this house, and they say, all right, live. And usually the drama is natural, and it ensues. And back in 2000, the real world had a casting call at the University of Georgia, which, as we all know, is the greatest university on the history of the planet. And it also happened to be where I was working as a campus minister at the Wesley Foundation there. So a buddy of mine came in, and he was like, oh, they're casting for Real World down at the uh, Georgia Theater. Let's go. We need to get in. I was like, they're not going to pick us. If they, want, if they get Christians, they're the Christians that are just irritating. And we're relatively normal and nice, so they're not going to take us. He was like, no, no, we're going to go. We're gonna go. So we went down there. And I went, and you fill out this sheet that's your bio, and, and then you put a picture on it, and you give it to a casting director. And then they herd you into this room, and you stand there. And then what they do is there's all these tables set up, and there's about 11 or 12 people, strangers, at each table. Like, you, you just get sat with people that you've never met, and a casting director at each table. And a casting director sounds impressive, but it was just a guy in a T-shirt with a clipboard. And um, his job or her job was to look at people and see who's interesting, who they wanted to call back that may be a potential fit for the show. So we sit there, and, and it, it's a big long table, and I'm sitting at the end of the table, and college students sitting, you know, lined the table, and then at the other end is the casting director, and they start talking because the way they cast the real world is they just sit you down and talk and, and see who rises up as interesting. If nobody's interesting, then the whole, you know, they just don't mark anybody's name. So they start talking, and at college campus, immediately the discussion turns to sex. Because the real world is a smart television production, and they know that sex sells. So the discussion, they're talking about sex and everything. And I'm sitting down at the end of the table, and I can't really hear what's going on. I mean, I, I just physically, I can't hear. We're in a crowded theater, and a bunch of other tables are talking about sex, probably. And so I, you know, I kind of get the attention of the casting director. Can you speak? I can't hear you down here. Can you guys speak up a little bit? And he looks at me like, 
point blank, and he's just like, yo, we're talking about sex. Are you a virgin? <laughs> like, and I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> and the response, I mean, it was so matter of fact that it, he, the whole table, just heads just, like, <laughs> spotlight on me. And so the way he said it was expecting me to be like, well, no, I mean, I'm not. A, but I was like, yeah, like, aren't you? Knowing he wasn't. And so then he says, well, I mean, is that like for religious reasons? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> if, if, if there's no ban, if there's no reason, if, if God hasn't said don't have sex outside of marriage, and in our day and age where there's birth control and there's protection, there's real, I mean, honestly, there's really no reason not to, unless it's from God. I, I can't convince anybody, I don't even want to try about abstinence and singleness apart from because it's God's will, because the other reasons don't matter and you can get around them. And so I was like, well, yeah, it's religious. You know, it's my, my faith in God. And so then the students, you know, they had fresh meat, they wanted to pounce. And so the students started trying to, you know, figure out what this weird creature in their midst was. And so this guy, and this is in Georgia, and he turned and he's like, well, I mean, man, you, you don't buy a car without test driving it, do you? <laughs> and that's, I, I've heard that so many times. The implication is you can't know somebody until you've had sex with them. And so knowing that's a cultural assumption that he'd bought into and knowing God's truth, I, and being somewhat trying to maneuver the situation, I said, well, I thought we were talking about a woman, not a machine. I'm not going to drive my wife around. And the women, <laughs> they immediately, the bad guy was shifted to him from me. <laughs> and it was, you know, yeah, what are you saying? We're not cars. It's not about buying anything. When you get married, you're committing your life to a person. Well, okay, ladies, y'all aren't off the hook, because one of the a girl, uh, she's nice and proper and pretty, she's like, well, I mean, like, yeah, what if you get, you know, you're virgin, and you get married, and then you guys find out that you don't really fit sexually, you know? And I was like, <laughs> not really. <laughs> I was an art major, but I took two biology classes, and I know that <laughs> pretty much everybody fits sexually. <laughs> It's, it's, not, it's not a jigsaw puzzle, you know? And so I, I told her, you know, knowing that's another of culture's lies, I said, well, when you talk about not fitting sexually, I'm assuming that you think there's some sexual dysfunction or something that if we were to find on our wedding night. And I said, but if it were the case, it wouldn't be purely physical, and if it is physical, there's medicine and treatment, but if it, it would probably be emotional or spiritual, probably some kind of issue. And, and that's what you go to a marriage therapist or a Christian sex therapist for, to work that out. We have a lot of fun working it out. And she was just like, uh, you know. So, the, but the idea in that, and then they went on and talked again. And I, I didn't make the real world, obviously. But the guy who they picked went on the show, and on the first episode, he decided to tell everybody he was gay. And so it was much more interesting than if I had been on there. And um, I don't have that much drama. He, but from that experience, what I learned was that culture's lies are just, they're everywhere. And some of these kids that were saying this stuff were churchgoers. Um, so the first thing, and I don't want to belabor the point, but the first thing, it begins in our head. We have to know God's plan, and we have to know culture's lies. And the only way to know God's plan is to read what he said about it.
But the second thing we do, knowing is, like G.I. Joe said, knowing is only half the battle. The second thing that we have to do is we have to flee from sexual immorality. We have to flee from it. And the word that Paul uses is flee, uh, it, it, he uses it in the sense it's ongoing. We don't really speak that way in English, but if it were translated literally, it would be keep on fleeing. Keep on fleeing. Flee continually. Because Paul's no dummy, and he knew who he was writing to, and he had lived in Corinth for a number of years, and he knew that every day you're going to be faced with it. Whether it's a fresco on the temple of a wall that shows people doing God knows what, to a temple prostitute knocking on your door saying, hey, time to worship. You know, whatever it is, <laughs> every day, it's a daily thing. And so he says, flee from it. Don't just kind of like, eh, it's... He says, flee, Get, just run away from it. And the image that he probably had in mind was Joseph in the book of Genesis in Potiphar's house. If you haven't read that story, read Genesis 39. Flee from sexual immorality. Well, how? How do we flee from that? What are some actual ways? Give us something that we can do instead of just sitting there talking to us. Okay, glad you asked. Uh, one of the things, sexual immorality, I may not have mentioned this earlier, but the word Paul uses the word porneia, and it's a Greek word that means sex outside of marriage, and any sex that's not between a man and his wife. And all these, when he says sexual immorality, he's saying flee porneia and, and avoid porneia. And don't. Well, one of the ways that we can flee porneia, sexual immorality, is to take measures to do what's necessary. Um, I don't have the internet on my computer at home because like it or not, as many wonderful uses as the internet has, having the internet on your home computer is like having a 24-hour adult bookstore in your bedroom. I mean, it's just a simple fact. Like, you can, yes, you can look up the most amazing information on there, and you can also look up the complete opposite. And it for guys, and if I, most people say, well, for guys, no, for men and women, because I know women in here that struggle with this, as I know men do, it's just too much temptation. And so that's an area where I've said, you know, I, I'm just going to flee. No internet at home on my computer. If I have to check my email, I have to stay connected to the world. I come to the church or use my roommates. Or, that's a way of fleeing from it. Same thing if you've got, you know, 200 cable channels and nine HBOs and four Cinemaxes and, and most of what, I mean, really, like, do you need those? I'm not saying we're not getting legalistic. You don't have to go home and, you know, cancel everything. But if you struggle with sexual immorality, with sexual issues, then it's probably not the best thing to have access to it 24-7. Recovering alcoholics don't hang out in bars and keep full liquor cabinets at home. People that struggle with sexual sin could take a cue from them. Another way is accountability. Um, the biggest weapon that Satan uses to keep sexual sin in a control of us is privacy, secrecy, and silence. And so the people who struggle the most with sexual sin are the people that you would never, ever think they do. Accountability. Get people in your life. Join a small group. Guys, we have men's groups here. Join one. Women, ladies' groups, couples, join a couples' group. We, accountability. Get people in your life that can hold you accountable and ask the tough questions in love. And the third way, and this, this, may, this is where I may ruffle some feathers, so uh, you know, if you want to throw something, just make it sure it's soft is if you're in a sexual relationship right now and you're not married, how do you flee from it? Um, there are people in this room that aren't married that had sex last night. And you don't feel great about it, and that's why you're here. And I'm glad. 
and we are so glad you're here. And there's no condemnation. This is just about teaching so you'll know and so you can flee. But if you're in a relationship and you're single and it's sexual, if you've crossed over the line, um, stop. There's really not a better way to say it. (laughs) You know, why beat around the bush? Stop having sex if you're not married. Well, but you don't understand. I mean... I'm the only Christian she knows, so if if we stop sleeping together, then we're going to break up, and then she'll never come to Christ, and she won't keep coming to church with me, and and then there goes my witness. (laughs) I I didn't make that up. I mean, this is stuff I've heard. (laughs) What kind of witness for Jesus are you when you're waking up in the same bed every morning? God cares more about the salvation of your boyfriend or girlfriend than you do, and He doesn't need your sin to keep them hearing the gospel. So just stop. No, it's easier said than done, I know. And and that's why there's an information sheet in your bulletin. You look at it later, but uh, it has some thoughts on sexuality that I've drawn from some excellent sources. And then it has some resources on the back, books and websites and things. But at the bottom, uh, there's an email address that you can send an email to if you do struggle with sexual sin of any kind and you'd like to talk to somebody on pastoral staff here, man or woman, and that's completely confidential. But flee from it. Well, but you don't understand, we're so in love. We love each other. I mean, we're married in God's eyes. Really? Prove it. Get married in people's eyes. If you are close enough to have sex, but you haven't publicly proclaimed that you're close enough to have sex, then you're not close enough to have sex. In God's plan, you don't enjoy it privately until you've proclaimed it publicly. And if you're not willing to proclaim it publicly, that means that you're not responsible enough to enjoy it privately. And if I just stepped on your toes, I'm sorry, but it's, I didn't make it up. Prove it. Get married. Actually, in the next chapter in Corinthians, Paul will say, point blank, he'll say, for those of you that are unmarried and want to get married, Get married, because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. And I think it's good advice, if it comes down to it. But in the meantime, God's plan is celibacy and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. We have to flee from it. And it's hard, and it's countercultural, and it's counter-biological, and we're revved up and ready to get... Yeah. And some people say, it's just so hard. You know, I'm so lonely and, and sexual sin is it's just so hard, and, and we'll talk about the loneliness in a minute, but it is hard. And so is discipleship. And somewhere, I don't know when, but we got the idea that, that discipleship and following Jesus was easy. It wasn't for Jesus, it wasn't for Paul, and it wasn't for 11 of the 12 original apostles. So, yeah, it's hard. And that's why we're here together as a body of Christ, to help one another out. And in that vein... Uh, The third thing we can do is help each other. Men and women, help each other. What does that mean? Well, let's start with the basics. Men, don't toy with women's emotions. Don't flirt with somebody you're not interested in. Don't make promises with your lips and hands that your heart can't keep. Help your sisters out. Women, we are very visual creatures, men. Be aware of that when you're picking your wardrobe out for the day. Now, I'm not saying everybody put on like a 
big burlap suit and just walk around. And, you know, uh, in other religions, women are covered their entire body except for like one eye because <laughs> they don't want, I'm not making that up, that's true, but because they don't want to, and, and the, the, the motivation for that is good, but the legalism and the suppression, that's just one oppression to another. Women, styles and trends change. You may think you look very cute and, and very fine, and a guy two seats behind you in church may be battling to death over lust. Just be aware of it. There's no cookie cutter. There's no skirts this length. and that, I mean, none of that. It's, you have the Holy Spirit, and he's the one that can help you discern. But just keep it in mind. Help us out from a guy's perspective. Make it easy on us. Well, the, the singles, being single, one of the biggest things that comes up, especially in the area of sexual sin, is it just gets so lonely sometimes. Um, the number one reason, if you look at studies of, of pornography addicts and, and people when they uh, succumb to pornography, usually nine out of ten times it's because of severe loneliness. And, and that's a way to reach out and to experience, and, and it's, it's, a, it's unfortunate. It's like trying to medicate without medicine. But what about being lonely? I mean, there are people in here who are like, yeah, it's all funny and everything, but I'm really sad and depressed because I go home to an empty house every night, and I cry myself to sleep every night. And if that's you in here, and that's been me on occasion, uh, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing abnormal with you if you're single. It's okay. Because you're in really good company. Me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, you're, listen to this. I, this is from a book by Bob and June Vetter. Uh, it's a book, Christian Counseling and the Singles. Listen to this. Most of his boyhood friends were probably married by the time they reached 30, but not him. He had friends of both sexes, but no wife or children. He was able to relax in other people's homes, but he had no home of his own. He knew what it was like to care for an aging parent, but he never knew the joys and challenges of being a parent himself. He knew who he was, where he was going, and how he wanted his career to develop, but he also knew what it was like to be considered different, a threat to other people, and a misfit. He was a healthy young man with all the sexual urges and temptations that human beings experience, and he never had a wife with whom he could be sexually intimate. He knew how to laugh, how to hold his own in heated debates, and how to play with little children, but there were times when he cried and sometimes he felt very lonely and alone. Usually we don't think of him this way, but Jesus was a single adult. That's been really comforting to me to know that in my loneliness, of all people, Jesus can relate the best. And so if you're single here today, I say you stand in good company because you stand in the presence of God himself in human form. And marriage is a blessing, and those of you that are married, it's wonderful. The Bible speaks very highly of marriage, but some people are called to be single. And some people are called to be married but find themselves single. And for those, take heart and be encouraged. It's nothing that Jesus hasn't already walked through. The last thing is, okay, some people are sitting here thinking, great, fine, wonderful. No sex before marriage, great. You did it, yeehaw, big deal. I had sex before marriage, and I am damaged goods. I can't be a virgin anymore, and so why even bother? Well, there's no such thing as damaged goods in the kingdom of God. Um, 1 John 1.9 is a verse that every single person should have memorized. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and purify us from some of our unrighteousness except sexual. 
Is that what it says? No, he will purify us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. Sexual, non-sexual, there's no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cover. There's one unforgivable sin in the Bible, and it's not porneo. So if that is you, and if you have struggled in the past, even if it was 20, 30 years ago, and not a soul knows about it but you and the person that you were with, and you just need to tell somebody so you can finally let it out, we're going to have, come forward now. No, I'm just kidding. We're, <laughs> obviously, this is a, a, a delicate issue, and it's an issue where a lot of shame and a lot of you know, emotion is involved. And so, but, but I don't want anybody to leave here with this on their heart, with the conviction, and not receive the healing. And so after the sermon, during the final music, I'm going to go over to the side, out of the way somewhere, and Talbot will be here. And um, if you need to just come and pray, even if it's just a guy who just said, I'd just like to pray that I continue to walk the walk. That's great, absolutely. You know, if it's that simple, or if it's something major that you've got to tell so that the healing can begin, I invite you to come and do that. God's plan for sexual intimacy is very clear. But temptations are strong, and our sex drives are real, and we don't need to sugarcoat it. What we have to do is remember that it begins in our heads. We're extensions of Jesus' body. We're temples of the Holy Spirit, and we're property of God. That's reason enough to want to follow anything he says about sexual intimacy. He's the one that invented it. Let's pray. God, I pray that anyone uh, in this room that's dealt with any sexual sin of any kind in their past or even in their present, that they would, that they would realize that they're not, they're not beyond healing and they're not out of the ordinary and there's nothing, no shame, there's no condemnation in you. And so I pray that, that they would receive your healing and cleansing today as we sing. And I also pray for those um, who may have never known God's plan for sexual intimacy and, and may have, or may have lived outside of it. I pray that this message would cut to the heart, um, not my words, but your words. I pray that your word in scripture would shake us to our core because this is an issue that we are surrounded in. And if we drop our guard, we'll find ourselves in the same boat as the Corinthian Christians. Lord, give us the power and the ability to walk in holiness, to walk in purity, and to do so out of love, not out of obligation. Thank you for what you've done for us. And let us go out after this and truly be your body. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.